This lecture is brought to you by Knox Theological Seminary on iTunes U. Knox is a seminary in the tradition of the Reformation that exists to educate men and women to declare and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that this teaching will be beneficial in your Christian life and ministry. Now the other thing, the other um, issue which crops up of course with people like Saunders and Wright uh, and the modern way of thinking about justification is did Luther make a mistake by assuming that justification by faith was the central doctrine of the Apostle Paul? You see, Luther said justification by faith is the article of a standing or falling church. Well, actually, Luther never did say that in so many words, but he said things that, that amounted to that. I mean, I mean that was the, um, the gist of his, of his teaching. Take away justification by faith, and the Christian faith, the Christianity disappears, would be Luther's idea. Is this what the Apostle Paul actually said? Is this what the Apostle Paul meant when he was writing to the Romans? Would he have seen justification in such a central way? And this is one of the big arguments um, in modern theology. You see, how important was justification to Paul? And therefore, how central should it be to us? Now, as with a lot of arguments of this kind, how you ask the question is in a way going to determine what sort of answer you get, you get and will affect your whole way of thinking about the issue. And you can read modern theologians back and forth on this subject and uh, get very confused. Because it's quite clear that for Paul, justification by faith is extremely important. It's quite clear that for Paul, justification by faith is particularly significant in contrast to the Jewish idea of keeping the law. I mean, that is clear. Does it push everything else out? Can you isolate it? Can you, can you describe the whole of the Christian life in terms of justification by faith and nothing else? Well, there, of course, um, there's, there's, there's bound to be disagreement because justification by faith is not isolatable. I can make up a word. I've never heard this word before, but I've just made it up. Um, you know, uh, you can't extract it from the whole package and treat it as if, as if it could stand independently uh, 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 of other things. Um, I mean, this is particularly important when you come to the connection with sanctification. 
because there was a certain school of Lutheran theology in the early 20th century, see, represented by people like Harnack, Adolf von Harnack, and people like this, who would say that you could. That in fact, justification by faith was so all-embracing a concept of its own, on its own, that you didn't really need anything else. And in particular, you didn't need sanctification. Uh, because sanctification, uh, in a sense, as they would understand it, is almost a contradiction of justification. See, if you claim to be justified by faith, but then uh, the way you live is basically the pursuit of sanctification, you know, doing good works in order to show that you're sanctified or in order to grow closer to God or something like that, are you not, in effect, denying justification by faith in practice? Because you're saying to yourself, yeah, yes, we believe in justification by faith, but the way we live uh, you know, shows that it's not very important. It's, uh, you know, we're spending our lives trying to become better people and just calling it sanctification, whereas the medieval church would have called, might have called it justification or not made a distinction uh, there. Uh, you know, we make the distinction, but we end up in the same place in the end. Uh, and they would say that's not right, uh, that uh, you don't have to pursue sanctification. You don't have to pursue good works. Good works are, uh, are, are a trap. You know, if you start going around doing good works, um, you're bound to fall into this, uh, uh, into this heresy of justifying yourself by the works. Better to avoid them. You know, uh, don't, don't even think like that. Uh, just rely entirely on faith. Well, of course, that doesn't make a great deal of sense because if you, if you, if you talk like this, which is all very well to talk like this in theory, but then what happens to the Christian life? Um, if you talk like that, the, the, the criticism that was made of Luther in the 16th century, unfairly in his case, becomes a fair criticism uh, as it did in the 20th century because people would say, well, you know, uh, you say one thing, but you do another. You don't actually practice what you preach. Um, you don't live out the principles that you proclaim. You know, what's going on? I mean, you talk about having a relationship with God, justification by faith and so on, uh, but then you don't, there's no application. You, it doesn't actually mean anything when it comes uh, to the way you live. And, uh, you know, the caricature, this is a caricature, um, but, it, you know, you hear it sometimes. People say, do you really mean, um, you know, that, for example, it doesn't matter. You can go out and lie, cheat, steal, do whatever you want, um, and it won't make any difference because you, you're a believer. You're justified by faith, you know. And there are quite a lot of criticisms of this way of thinking, not only from theology, theologians, um, but also... Uh, at, a, at a different sort of level, um, uh, the popular level, I mean, if you, uh, Sinclair Lewis, the novelist, you know, who wrote Elmer Gantry, um, the sort of criticism of the evangelist, Elmer Gantry, is really getting at this, 
because Elmer Gantry was going around preaching, you know, salvation uh, in Christ and so on, and living an immoral life at the same time. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is a, a, a constant theme, if you like, of this kind of thing. Um, you know, can you be a televangelist and, um, you know, preach, preach one thing, but live in a different, you know, live in an inconsistent way. Uh, and of course, we all know that this is wrong. We see it. We see, I'm not trying to criticize these people. I mean, it's just because we know about them. We see, we, you know, they're prominent. But we could all fall into this trap, you know. Uh, put it a different way. Um, I go to church on Sunday, but from Monday to Saturday, it doesn't make any difference to my life. Uh, you, you know, I just live like a, a anybody else during the week, uh, but I go to church on Sunday. This is not Christianity. This is not justification by faith alone. You see, this is a contradiction in terms. Um, but it's a contradiction which has been justified, can be justified by extracting this doctrine of justification from, a con from its context and uh, exalting it, you see, to uh, putting it on a pedestal, making it so important that by itself that nothing else matters. Uh, and, and this cannot be right. And so even back in the 16th century, you see, when this question arose, you had people like John Calvin, for instance, you see, who basically was a follower of Luther. I mean, Calvin picked up Luther and, and ran with him. I mean, he wasn't anti-Luther. But neither did he put justification by faith at the center of his theology. You see, at the center of Calvin's theology is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And he fits justification by faith alone into that picture. He doesn't deny it. Um, uh, he sees its importance, uh, but he puts it in a context. And this, I think, is what we have to do. You see, uh, we have to say, yes, it is very important. It does matter. It is a, a, a major theme in Paul when Paul is talking about the law. But it, it cannot be isolated, taken away from everything else. It's not, you see. Uh, it's part of a personal relationship with God. A personal relationship with God in Christ, you see. And it is only in that context uh, that the terminology, the, the, the word makes any sense. Because it's only in Christ that we can be justified. I mean, if I'm not united with Christ, if I'm not grafted into Christ, if Christ has not shown his grace and his love towards me in allowing this to happen and making this happen, then nothing I claim or say or do or anything like that will make any difference, you know, because if I am justified by faith, it's only because Christ has given me the faith 
Christ has given me the, the, the status, he's given me the relationship to make these words mean something. The minute I, I start saying it's because I have done something to deserve it or I have you know, conformed my life in some way or other to this, it doesn't work anymore. And of course the same is true of sanctification. I cannot become a holy person or a better person by my own efforts. It can only be by the grace of God. And you see this, of course, the paradox of the saints, the, you know, the great saints, is that they are the last people to claim that designation. You, you know, I mean, nobody who is a real saint is going to tell you so. Uh, you, you, you see what I mean? They would, they would deny this. And, I mean, the, the biggest problem I have with the, with the cult of the saints, you see, the sort of veneration of the saints and so on, is that the saints themselves don't want it. This isn't in any way denying the, the holiness of other people. I'm in no way at all. It, it's just simply saying, well, what is the nature of holiness? You see, holiness is not an achievement is not a, a, an, ob, a, an objective improvement in the person concerned. It is rather uh, a, a deeper union with, with, with God in Christ. And if the example of a holy person or whatever can help me achieve that, well, fine, you know, I'm not going to say no to this. But the object of the exercise must always be um, to get closer to God in Christ. And this is what the saints, the so-called saints themselves, want. <laughs> you know, for you and me. I mean, they, they have no interest in drawing attention to themselves. They want to draw attention only to God. You know, because that is, that is the nature of their sainthood. That is the nature of their holiness. All right. So, although it sounds paradoxical in some ways, um, uh, this is what uh, what it's all about. All right, and what justification, uh, in particular, um, uh, is about. How can Israel bear the sins of the world? See, the idea that Israel sort of uh, it becomes the repository of sin. You see that because it's been given the law. It's been given an understanding of sin, and therefore Israel has to bear the burden of sin. First of all, there's nothing like this in the Bible. I mean, where does the Bible say anything even remotely like that? It doesn't. But how would it be possible? I mean, Jesus as an individual can take the, bear the sins of the world and can suffer and die for our salvation. That makes sense. I mean, you, you don't have to believe it, but at least it makes some kind of sense. But how could Israel die for the sins of the world? You know, Israel couldn't be crucified. What would this mean? You know, would Israel as a nation, the entire nation, have to disappear, have to be annihilated in order for sin to be paid for in order for the atonement to have been made and if that were to happen how would Israel come back to life? 
you know, where would the resurrection be? How could it be resurrected? The, it, the, the concept, the whole idea makes no sense. You see, this is a, a construction. Um, it doesn't have any, um, um, any practical application. Because if Israel, but if, if, if the crucifixion was somehow uh, Israel going into exile, being taken off to Babylon, um, what happened in Babylon that would somehow change, the, change Israel? I mean, all right, Israel was there, you know, it got taken away to Babylon. When, but first of all, there were all kinds of problems with this. I mean, first of all, it wasn't the entire nation that was taken away. I mean, Jeremiah, for instance, stayed in, in Jerusalem. I mean, he didn't go to Babylon. So does that mean he was no longer part of Israel? Does that mean that he didn't atone for the sins? That, you know, what's going on with this? Then, of course, the coming back from the exile, it wasn't everybody. I mean, there was a Jewish community which stayed in Babylon, um, you, you know, and was there for hundreds of, of years afterwards. Um, and so what about them? You know, it's, this is a fantasy that has been created. Uh, it's not a reality. Um, whereas with, the, with Christ, you see, you have, a, you have a person, a real human being, who was actually crucified, uh, who died and, and rose again, you know, in historical time, in a particular place, in a definable way, rather than this kind of vague, um, uh, you know. And, of course, it leaves you, it leaves you with, the, with the question, well, can you be part of Israel without being exiled, you know, like Jeremiah, um, I mean, def definition becomes impossible. Israel deserved the punishment that it was that that it was given, and of course, the 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 redemption, the the, the return from exile to to Palestine, had no effect on anybody else. I mean, it wasn't for the salvation of the nations that this happened. You know, I mean, they were they went back to to Jerusalem, but. They didn't recover their political independence, for instance. I mean, previously they'd been independent. They'd had a king and so on, you know, and, they, they, and all the rest. But when they went back from exile, no. I mean, they rebuilt the temple. But people like Ezra and Nehemiah and so on, these were agents of the king of Persia, you know, the, the, the Persia, because they were part of the Persian Empire uh, and subject to that. And of course, by the time of Jesus, they were subject to the Roman Empire. They weren't an independent state. So even that, you know, it wasn't a return to, the early, to, to where they were before. It was something less than what they had before. Whereas in the case of Jesus, I mean, the resurrection was something more than what he had before. You know, it was a, it was a higher state, not a, not a lower one. Whereas in the case of Israel, I mean, at every point when you start analyzing the, co the, the correspondence, it doesn't work, you know, it falls apart. So I think that's what, um, uh, what we have to say there. These courses provide a glimpse into our academic programs. Knox students can take one week or semester length courses in person at our South Florida campus or choose to complete a degree entirely online. 
By bringing together academic excellence, a vibrant community of learning, and flexible scheduling, Knox offers today's students timeless truth through modern convenience. For more information about earning credit toward a master's degree, please visit our website at knoxseminary.edu.